but she sees a cloud rolling in from the far shore and a wind coming with it across the wide expanse of water. She sees the surface ripple and darken, like goosebumps, she thinks, and feels a chill herself. She wraps the towel about her shoulders, her dark brows furrow. She looks for something out on the lake. Me? Not me. I'm at work by now. No, still at work from the day before. She does not see me because I am not there. Neither does she see the figure cross behind her from woods to house, scale the porch railing and crouch in the shadows, waiting. I try to call to her, but I am choked by sadness and fear, and I cannot make a sound or even take a breath. And now this wave is breaking, and I am pitched headlong under a solid sheet of gray water. The ocean rushes through my nose and ears. I cannot shut my mouth to it. I welcome it. I am tumbling now, not sure of where the surface lies, caught in some cold undertow and headed out to sea. I washed up across my bed like a castaway, tangled in sheets like seaweed, gripping pillows like an oar. I rolled on my back and stared at the ceiling and the shadows sketched there by the thin morning light. The phone was ringing far away, at the other end of the house, but even at a distance it made my eyes shake in my head. I lay there, waiting for the spinning to stop and for the answering machine to pick up, but neither would happen. I was still drunk, and I'd shot the machine last week. Three years later. Everyone was in a bad mood. It was a palpable thing in Midtown, as pungent as the bus exhaust on the cold evening air, and as loud as the traffic. Cars and trucks and taxicabs were locked in mortal combat, surging forward by inches, then rocking to a halt, their drivers cursing and leaning on their horns, their passengers fuming. Surly streams of people poured from office towers and washed into the gridlock, adding their own fulminations to the angry grind. Maybe it was the season that brought it on, a week before Thanksgiving, the cusp of the holidays. Maybe it was the prospect of Christmas shopping, or of all that family time bearing down like a freight train. Maybe it was the gnawing obsession with this year's bonus, assuming there was one, or the corrosive dwelling on the next round of layoffs. Maybe everyone was battle-fatigued, edgy from the latest terror alerts, strung out from life in the crosshairs. Or maybe it was just another hellish rush hour. Whatever, it was some nasty karma. At 7 p.m. I was threading my way through these wretches, headed up Park Avenue. I crossed 52nd Street, threading between two taxis, and pushed against a wave of people into the lobby of Mike's building. I got on an elevator and pressed 30. Michael Metz is a partner at the law firm of Paley, Clay, and Quick, and the firm's biggest rainmaker. He's also my friend, and has been since college, from the day we first chased each other around a squash court vying for a spot on the team ladder. For the last couple of years, he's also been my most regular employer. Mike's got an eclectic practice. Corporate work, entertainment, matrimonial, every now and then some criminal work. And I've done lots of different things for him. Background checks, find the girlfriend, find the boyfriend, find the assets. But tonight, he said, was something different. The elevator doors opened with a sigh, and I stepped into Paley Clay's reception area. At this hour and this season, it was dark and quiet. The front desk sat in a pool of light and looked like a mahogany toll booth. 
It dwarfed the old guard dozing behind it. John marched to see Mike Metz, I told him. He punched some numbers into the phone and whispered into the handset and told me to go on in. I pushed through glass doors and walked down a broad corridor to a region of large offices, oriental rugs, and dark wood paneling. Partner country. Mike was bent over his secretary's desk, pen in hand, leafing through a thick file. He was, as always, impeccably turned out. His navy suit was expertly cut to his lanky frame, and his tightly knotted tie rested on a brilliant white shirt. He straightened to his full six-foot-four height and ran a hand through his sparse dark hair. Mike is in his middle thirties, just a couple years older than me, but he looks forty-something. The price of partnership, I guess. He eyed my clothes. You sort of dress for the occasion, he said. Thanks. Unlike Mike, I was not always impeccably turned out, and several of his partners were sure I was a bicycle messenger. But now, in gray flannels, a black wool polo shirt, and a black leather jacket, I was well within the bounds of appropriate. No visible tattoos, no piercings, and I unscrewed the bolts in my neck. What more could you ask, I said. Where's your guy? In the conference room, but let's talk a little first. Well, that would be good, I said, since you told me exactly nothing about this. I sat in his secretary's chair. There's a reason. The guy's shaken up right now, and based on what he's told me, he's probably right to be. I've known him a long time, and he's not usually a jumpy guy, but right now he's scared and paranoid. Okay, he's scared and paranoid, no different from most clients. But what's his problem, and does he have a name? He does, Mike answered. But he'd rather I didn't tell you what it is, or anything more about him, until he's had a chance to look you over. He wants to get a sense of you before he starts talking about his problems. He understands that I'd actually be working for you on this? He understands, and I told him I've had a lot of experience with you, and that you're smart and thorough and stubborn, and that you run faster and jump higher and have healthy teeth and a shiny coat, and probably some other lies too, but he's jumpy. Mike shrugged. Let's go, I said, sighing, and I followed him into the conference room. The room was dim, lit only by the small ceiling lights that shone on the architectural prints ranged around the walls, and by the city lights that glowed through the bank of windows opposite the door. In the center of the room was an oval table in dark wood. A man was sitting at it, facing the door. On the table next to him was a small filing box. The man didn't look scared, and he didn't look jumpy. He looked rich. He was in his early forties, with olive skin and black hair brushed straight back from a wide forehead. His wide face was clean-shaven, with dark, deep-set eyes. He wore a shirt striped in several shades of blue, and a silk tie in a dark, solid red. A gray suit jacket was slung over the chair next to him. He stared at me, but said nothing. I sat down across the table from him. Mike shut the door, drifted over to the window, and stared out at the nighttime city. The man sat back, propped his elbows on the arms of his chair, and looked at me over the top of his steepled fingers. Mike prompted him. You had some questions for John? Yeah, he answered after some thought. Yeah. My first question is, how long have you been doing this, investigating? His voice was surprisingly soft and had a trace of an accent, Brooklyn or Long Island. Just over two years, I answered. I was a cop for seven years before that. In the city? I shook my head. Upstate. You from up there? He asked. No. I didn't offer any more. 
He thought about that a little and then went on. You were a detective? I was a sheriff's investigator for five years. I spent the first two in uniform. Not much white-collar crime up there, I guess, he observed. I laughed a little. Not much. How old are you? Thirty-two. You go to college? Yes. You start with a sheriff right after? Yes. Were you good at it? I glanced at Mike. No help there. I was good at it. Why'd you stop doing it? I saw Mike's shoulders stiffen. I took a deep breath. Personal reasons, I said. He was quiet for a while. It was your choice. They didn't ask you to leave? It was my choice. The man leaned back in his chair. In the private investigating, are you good at that too? I paused. This was getting old. No, not really. Mostly I hang out at home watching TV, faking my time reports, and padding my expenses. The man sat up. I went on, speaking evenly, matter-of-factly. What do you expect me to say? Of course I'm going to say I'm good. And that could be true, or it could be a load of crap. And there's not much we can talk about here that will tell you one way or the other. I can understand your position. You've got a problem, and it must be a bad one if you need to hire someone like me. I imagine the last thing you want is to make it worse by involving some clown who's incompetent, indiscreet, greedy, or worse. I'm not that clown, but you've got to take Mike's word on that. Or not. He sat perfectly still in his chair, looking across at me. Mike sighed and said, Well, I think we're done for the moment, yes? John, could you wait outside? Mike asked. I shut the door behind me. I sat at the secretary's desk, and after about two minutes, Mike opened the conference room door. Come in, John, he said. I passed. Mike rolled his eyes. It's your winning personality. Come on in. I came. John, this is Rick Piero. Rick, this is John March. Mike walked around the table and sat down. Piero rose, and we shook hands. He was about my height, just over six feet. I tossed my jacket on the table and sat. Sorry for making you jump through hoops, but this thing has got me wound up pretty tight. Piero leaned forward slightly as he spoke. What he said about trusting Mike was dead on. I trust him absolutely, and he tells me only good things about you. And you seem like a no-bullshit guy to me. So let's go. Not a problem, I replied. What are we here to talk about? You know much about Wall Street? Piero asked. Some, I replied. A smile flickered across Mike's face. I'm at French Samuelson. You hear of it? He asked. The investment bank, I said. Piero nodded. That's what we are now, for better or for worse. When I started there twenty years ago, we were a meat and potatoes commercial bank. Deposits, loans, checking accounts, all the basics. Now we do it all. Everything from traditional banking to mergers and acquisitions, IPOs, even venture capital. He said it with an odd mix of pride and irony. I've seen the change firsthand. I joined French straight out of college, went into the training program, and then into corporate lending. I did well there. For three years, I was the top loan producer, and in the meantime, I'd gotten through B-school at night. Then I made the switch over to investment banking, and I did even better. In two years, I was running a team. Then I did a stint in London and another in Singapore. From Singh, I came back to the States and ran a couple of different industry groups in M&A. And for the last three years, until six months ago, I ran all of M&A in North America. Six months ago, I took over our venture capital unit. He paused. Nice career, 
I observed. I didn't know what else to say. I've done all right, despite what's happened in the markets, he said. And you know, I'm not an old guy. I've got some miles in me yet. Two months ago, I find out I'm up for a spot on the executive committee. That's a group of about a dozen senior managers that actually runs the whole place. You can't go much farther at French. Piero paused again and looked at Mike, who moved his head minutely. Piero continued. A week ago, I get this. He reached over to his suit jacket and took a thick envelope from a pocket. He slid it across the table. Inside was a fax. The cover sheet bore only Piero's name in bold type along with the message, We'll talk soon. Vague but ominous. The fax itself was comprised of five different documents, two letters and a memo, each dated 18 years ago and each concerning a company called Textiles Pan Europa, a two-page list of what appeared to be funds transfers, and a copy of a year-old magazine article. One of the letters was on French Samuelson stationery, the other one and the memo were on the letterhead of a firm called Merchants Worldwide Bank. I leafed through the facts a couple of times, but I didn't get it. Mike and Piero watched me. This needs some explaining, Mike said. Have you read about Merchants, John? It got a lot of press a few years ago, and there's a story on it every so often because the case is still going on. The name was familiar, but I couldn't place it, and I told him so. Maybe you know it by another name, he said. Money Washing Bank? The money laundering thing, I said. Mike nodded. I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. The details are in the file. He pushed the filing box over to me and began. Merchants Worldwide Bank was the largest of several dozen institutions owned by a Luxembourg holding company called the Merchants Group. And, according to federal prosecutors, it was the largest criminally controlled financial services firm that anyone's ever heard of. It had a lot of legitimate customers and did a lot of legitimate business, but that was basically window dressing. MWB's real business was servicing a clientele that ran the gamut from bad to worse. Drug dealers, arms merchants, dictators, terrorists. Bad, bad guys. Money laundering was their leading service, and they were top-of-the-line providers. They maintained hundreds of corporate shells, any place in the world you might need one, ready and waiting to funnel cash by the tens of millions, even the hundreds of millions daily. And they controlled real companies, too, legitimate businesses with offices and employees and products and everything. They'd buy into them, usually secretly, and turn them into cash conduits. Mike leaned back in his chair. It was unique in terms of scale and scope, a beautiful thing in its own way, Mike continued. But it started coming apart just over three years.